You are listening to an episode of the Manager Track podcast. In this episode, I have the great pleasure to interview Lindsay Pollock. Lindsay is a New York Times bestselling author and one of the world's leading career and workplace experts. In fact, I see her name on so many articles and so many posts on TED Talks and so forth. So I've been familiar with her for quite some time and I'm excited to bring her on this podcast. She was named to the 2020 Thinkers 50 radar list, which honors the top global management thinkers whose work is shaping the future of how organizations are managed and led. She wrote a total of four books, and her latest book is a response to the COVID crisis. It's called Recalculating, Navigate Your Career Through the Changing World of Work. Her other books include The Remix, How to Lead and Succeed in the Multi-Generational Workplace, as well as Becoming the Boss, New Rules for the Next Generation of Leaders. We're going to dive into that in this episode. And Getting from College to Career, Your Essential Guide to Succeeding in the Real World. Lindsay's speaking audiences and consulting clients have included more than 250 corporations, law firms, conferences, and universities. Her advice and opinions have appeared in media outlets such as The Today Show, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, CNN, NPR, and many more. So we're kind of thrilled to have Lindsay on the podcast. She is a big deal and you'll get to find out soon why that is. So we'll talk a little bit about sort of navigating change. So if you've ever thought about potentially changing your career or if you know someone who's thinking about making a shift, her tips and insights that she's sharing here on the podcast are definitely super useful. And then we'll dive into her thoughts around becoming the boss and what she's noticed through her work. And then we'll dive into conversations around becoming the boss, how new managers lead successfully, what are some of the hurdles and pain points moving into leadership and we specifically hone in on working across different generations so how do you lead someone who is from a different generation and what are some of these common struggles that she's noticed and what she's learned by writing the book doing research and working inside and with organizations all day every day so this conversation is super insightful and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did recording it I kind of didn't want to end it I could have kept Lindsay on for another two hours asking her questions and learning from her experience and her insights. Well, by now, I hope you're intrigued. So without further ado, let's dive into the conversation with Lindsay. Here's the question. How do you successfully transition into your first official leadership role, build the confidence and competence to lead your team successfully, and establish yourself as a respected and trusted leader across the organization? That's the question, and this show provides the answers. Welcome to the Manager Track Podcast. I'm your host, Ramona Shaw, and I'm on a mission to create workplaces where work is not seen as a source of stress and dread, but as a source of contribution, connection, and fulfillment. And this transition starts with developing a new generation of leaders who know how to lead so everyone wins and grows. In this show, you learn how to think, communicate, and act as the confident and competent leader you know you can be. Welcome to this episode of the Manager Track Podcast. I am super excited to have Lindsay Pollock with me today. And Lindsay has been someone that I followed for quite a while. She's published several books. I own a couple of them. So speaking with her and having this conversation today is something that I've been looking forward to for quite a while. So Lindsay, welcome to the Manager Track Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You wrote the book. Uh, you said you published that last year. I still see it pop up. <laughs> In many places. It's called Recalculating, Navigate Your Career Through the Changing World of Work. 
we obviously are all familiar sort of with the idea of going through a lot of change. There has been a lot of change. What was it for you that sparked your interest or sort of that, that little spark that motivated you to write this book? So I think we all know the metaphor of your GPS in your car when you make a wrong turn or you hit traffic and your GPS kind of glitches for a minute and says recalculating. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the image that came into my mind when COVID started. I was running a speaking business. I had just had a new book called The Remix come out. I was on the road all the time, really busy and everything stopped. And a lot of that business went away. And I was forced to find a new path to my goals. And I was literally sitting in my apartment in New York City, looking out the window, kind of trying to figure out what to do. And I saw cars and I just thought about that moment. And, and the metaphor was kind of optimistic to me because when your GPS says recalculating, it says there's another way to get where you want to go. We just have to try something different. We have to you know, do things that we weren't planning to do. And so I started researching how people were figuring out their careers through the pandemic and beyond. When I started it, I thought the pandemic would be very short, as we all did, mm -hmm. and that obviously totally. was not true. Um, but I really started to look at how people were recalculating because of the pandemic. And it kind of brought in to the fact that we're always recalculating, we're always pivoting, we're always finding new ways to do things. And I think the people I most admire are the people who are willing to pivot and change and recalculate. So I got really deep into that idea of recalculation not being this sort of one-time thing, but something that we really have to embrace as a skill we need for this kind of ever-changing world. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I can so relate. And I'm actually curious to hear your perspective on this. Some people have this underlying thought, mm, maybe I need to pivot and they don't act on it. They sort of sit through and they think, well, no, I have safety. I have security. Here's my job. Here's my plan. This is part of my identity. I very much had this when I was in the private equity world before at, at the very well-established, well-known, renowned company that's my identity. And I think people have this lingering feeling sometimes and not sure where to go. But at the same time, sometimes we are thinking the grass is greener on the other side. And we do make leaps when in fact, it might have paid off to work through the challenges in where you're at. So when you wrote that book, uh, what was your message around figuring out when is it actually time to pivot and when is it not? That so resonates with me. First, your story of leaving a really prestigious place. There was an element of grief that I think a lot of people had to go through if they lost a job or left a company that was really associated with their identity. And so that that human emotional connection was really, really important. Um, and in fact, I ended up writing the whole first chapter of the book on mindset and kind of the emotional connection that we have to work, which is something I really hadn't written about before the pandemic. Um, but your question about, you know, kind of knowing the right time and maybe making a change and regretting it, I ended up adding an entire chapter of the book that I didn't expect to write, but came from my interviews and research, which was recalculating in the same job or organization that you're in, that we tend to think of career change as being very dramatic uh, leaving mm -hmm. a company, leaving an industry, leaving a job. Whereas in reality, there's a lot that you can do within your current job title and company 
to maybe pivot your own thinking, to maybe pivot the people that you're spending time with, to pivot your attitude, to uh, try small projects that sort of nudge you in a direction of a different kind of work. It doesn't always have to be dramatic. And for Mm -hmm. a lot of people who were thinking about making a change, I think sometimes people wait too long and then they're desperate and miserable you know, and quit in a dramatic fashion when a lot of small changes or even dipping a toe in something different by, you know, taking on an entrepreneurial project or volunteering, or even just listening to a podcast about something different can really alter your thinking. So I really tried to demystify or de-dramatize the idea of change and Mm -hmm. say, we can do it in small ways all the time. It doesn't have to be this big dramatic fork in the road. Because if you think about it, you know, your GPS is recalculating all the time. It's always looking for, you know, the best situation, the best way to optimize, the best way to get out of trouble. It doesn't always have to be a huge left turn off your current path. And that really came from people telling me their stories. Oh, so speaking of something that you didn't expect to write in the book, what was was something else that you learned that maybe you weren't aware of and found out through your research? One of the key takeaways was how different people's attitudes were and how much that impacted their change. So for example, I think we all sort of assume that if you've been unemployed for a while or have taken a break from the workplace, that it's very hard to get back in. I think a lot of people make that assumption. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed two people back to back. It just kind of happened this way who had taken a step back from their careers and were trying to re-enter the workplace, which was extra tough because of the pandemic. And the first person I spoke to was really down about it and really pessimistic and said, oh, I'm I'm never going to get a job. I have this big gap in my resume. Nobody's going to want to hire me. It's so hard. And the second person I spoke to said, I am so excited to get back into the workforce. Everybody's going to want to hire me because I'm so refreshed and I'm so excited and I've done all these things to really stay relevant. And it was the same situation and just a different attitude. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I don't have data on that, but to me, it seemed like the second person had the right idea. And while it's okay to have concerns, one of the key themes that I ended up writing about in the book is to control what you can't. You can't mm-hmm. control whether somebody else is going to feel negatively about your career change or the gap in your resume or your age or anything about you. There's nothing you can do about that. So you might as well go in with a positive attitude. And in fact, I, I wrote a lot about ageism because a lot of people face that. And ageism is very, very, very real. But a lot of recruiters said they interview somebody who's older and they weren't even thinking about the age, but the candidate, the older job seeker said something in the first minute, like, oh, you probably think I'm too old for this job. And they immediately got in their own way when it wasn't even possible that the recruiter was thinking about it. So I think the ways our own actions and our own attitudes play into our careers was just a huge takeaway. You don't have to be perfect and cheery all the time. Nobody is. But I think when you think about success, you have a lot more to do with it than I think some people realize. Yeah. Gosh, I do a lot of work, uh, even on leadership, with in terms of self-leadership and understanding the connection between our thinking, our feelings, and therefore our actions, right? Because it all is tied right into each other and our actions lead to the results. So when we think about showing up in a very confident, enthusiastic, positive way, 
we act very differently than if we are worried, concerned, doubtful, we doubt ourselves, right? And we're already sort of hedging against rejections. We for sure, it's like we're we're failing ahead of time already because we're setting ourselves up for that experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good point. And I think it applies not just in the hiring process, right? Or career changes, but anytime we're dealing with things that are outside of our control. I see it a lot with people who have a difficult manager situation, and I'm sure we'll flip it to being the manager, but I often give workshops about communication and soft skills um, and negotiation and managing up and presentation skills. And I'll, I'll do a whole workshop and somebody will always come up at the end of the workshop and say, I get everything you're saying, you know, really good advice, but I can't do any of that because I have a bad boss. I have the mean boss. I have the micromanaging boss. You know, I I can't do it. And my answer is always, hey, congratulations on having a tough boss because you're now learning how to succeed in spite of or because of a tough boss. So you've got to see it as another workplace challenge. But if you see it as this huge roadblock that you can never surmount, you're not going to. But if you roll Mm -hmm. up your sleeves and say, okay, you know what I'm going to learn in this job, how to deal with difficult people. That's just a mindset shift. It maybe isn't any more fun, but if you look at people at the end of their careers, which I'm obsessed with doing, nobody says like, well, it was just so easy the whole way through. Everyone was really nice and I never had any conflict. And, you know, I respect the people who can deal with the difficult client, can handle the turnaround district, can manage the tough conversation. That's a skill set. And if you Mm -hmm. see it that way, it just changes your entire perspective. So Yes, there are toxic people. Yes, discrimination is real. And and those are very important to address and get away from. But sort of your typical everyday difficult situations, those are skills to build and and not to be kind of avoided or or overblown. Does that resonate with your experience? A hundred percent. And I think it it really helps someone become more of a mature leader in, in our case or employee because they're growing. It's this whole idea of right, growth happens outside of the comfort zone. When we're interacting with people that challenge us, um, that's really when we're expanding our skill sets. We are learning to see, oh, wow, you know, and, and actually, if I look back at my own career, the people or where I felt my communication skills, for example, grew the most. It was when I had to communicate with people who were either intimidating, had a very different approach to me or different ideas different ways of thinking. And I really had to take a step back and think like, oh my gosh, this is so hard, but I got to figure this out and I can figure this out. And it had me or made me think of alternative ideas. And I think those are the moments of really, you know, taking a step back, looking at what am I doing that's not working and how can I figure out how to make this work? But it, it is the mindset of not, I can't, but how can I? I love that. I love that. Not I can't, but how can I make this work? What can I do in this situation? I love that. I agree. It's such a big part. As a caring and driven manager, I know you want to strengthen your leadership skills, advance your career, and lead a high-performing, engaged team. And in order to do that, as a leader, you need to lead with a system, not by shooting from your hips or reacting to everyone else around you. To do so, you need to first learn what should go into a leadership system, and second, develop your own. Now, the good news is that I teach you one must-have part 
in your leadership system in a concise, actionable, and yet comprehensive course focused on running successful one-on-one meetings with your direct reports. It includes over 67 minutes of tactical leadership training, plus a set of resources to make this as easy and immediately applicable for you as possible. You can either watch the video lessons or listen to it through a private podcast feed on your phone. You can get your hands on this course, which I want every single manager to have, for a nominal $19 at RamonaShaw.com slash one one. That's two times the number one. You can check the show notes for the details or head on over to RamonaShaw.com slash one one to get started right now. I want to talk to you a little bit about the book that you wrote, Becoming the Boss, New Rules for the Next Generation of Leaders. In 2022, I published a book for new leaders as well. So I'm particularly keen to talk about sort of your approach and, and your ideas. In your book, you write about the leadership styles that appeal to both younger people as well as older colleagues. And you said uh, before we hit record, right, how often you talk in your work about leading across different generations. So for people who are going into new leadership roles and have to influence, manage, motivate, direct employees who are younger than them from different generations or older than them, what advice do you have for them? Yeah, I am obsessed with this topic. I originally, 20 years ago, started my business as a college campus speaker, and I was always interested in that college to career transition. And as I've advanced in the workplace and kind of observed the workplace, one of the biggest changes is that we now have five generations in the workplace, not because young people are coming in and becoming leaders, but because older people are working significantly longer into their lives. So you might have a 70-year-old working next to a 25-year-old, and that just didn't happen you know, 25 years ago. I think people need to realize how unique this is. And because of the rise of technology and the skill set that a lot of young people bring, it's not uncommon for a younger person to manage somebody significantly older. I think 35% of Americans work for a boss who is younger than they are. And that, again, was not all that common a generation ago. So I'm really interested in how we kind of bridge those perceived divides. And what I find is a lot of the same skills that leaders have used forever are totally applicable to all generations, but you have to be a little bit flexible with them. And one size does not fit all. So I think the leadership style that probably characterized kind of classic leadership from, you know, the, let's say, 1950s, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s was very command and control. It was very top down, do what I say. And a lot of people like me, that was kind of what we learned early on. And what has evolved over time because of social media and everybody having a voice, uh, because of technology, because of flattening organizations, because of globalization, because of so many factors, that top-down approach just doesn't work anymore. And so what is effective is a style that I think a lot of people used to use, but it was less common, which is more of a coaching style, which is I'm here not to tell you what to do, but to bring out the best in you. And I'm here to support you right? And be a helper to you. I'm still in charge. You know, I'm still very much in a leadership position, but I'm going to do more listening than telling. Um, I'm going to care about your mental health as much as I care about your performance. Um, And I'm really here to block things out of your way um, and support you and your strengths as much as I am to tell you exactly what to do. 
And I think that leaders who did that in previous eras were very successful. It just wasn't the dominant style, right? If you think about great bosses from the past, you often saw that. Um, but there's a real resistance of people who want command and control to work to keep doing it. You see this in sports, for example, when a coaching style is much more appealing to millennials and Gen Zs, but a lot of Gen Xers and baby boomers really, really appreciate it too. So I think coaching is the key word I would use. My face is radiating <laughs> with like, <laughs> yes, absolutely. But it's a hard shift to make, right? I think um, I was just on a call this morning with someone who said, you know, I'm interested in your new manager training program. Tell me a little bit more. And I was walking them through, you know, the reason why this program is 12 weeks long. And I said, look, one of the ways I'm going for sustainable results, I'm not trying to give you a band-aid solution. So when it comes to changing the behavior so that your default is not to direct and give advice, your default is to pause and to think what approach here is going to get me the best result or to help us the most in the situation. And that might, might be giving advice mm -hmm. and direction, but it might not. And the pausing is what I hope people will, will start to embrace and then playing with that range. But that's a behavioral change that's hard to do. So first it takes the mindset shift of, oh, wow, okay. So now I have to be a different kind of leader with these people that I'm leading, maybe older people that I'm leading, the directive style actually works fine. You know, with these same age kind of people, this works fine. With the people from the new, from newer generations or just people who who are high performers, right? And, and experts in their field, I can't even tell them what to do because I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. uh, in those situations, I have to adapt in that and I have to change my identity, my role and how I see myself as the leader, what I think my responsibility is. And then the simple practice of actually doing it can feel really uncomfortable. What suggestions do you have for people to adapt this habit? One of the challenges of it is people feel like perhaps they're seen as having less authority when they're not as command mm. and control, right? And one of, I think, the key tactics of being a successful multi-generational leader is to do more listening. And this is the number one thing I recommend to younger leaders who are managing older people is you don't lose your authority by listening more and saying, tell mm. me how you do it. Tell me how you want to do it. Tell me how you used to do it. What do you think? Doesn't mean you have to do what people want, but you do have to listen to what mm -hmm. they say. And so I think listening is number one. Um, number two, I think, is explaining the why, is when you make a decision, not just saying, this is what I said because I said so. We all know from being kids that nobody likes to be told because I said so. But I could say, you know what? I listened to all of your concerns, and this is the decision that I've made, and here is the reason why. Right. I do think in this world, when you can Google anything or watch a YouTube video about anything in the world or hear everybody's unfiltered thoughts on Twitter, it feels uncomfortable when somebody who's really in charge of your day to day and your career doesn't tell you what's going on. So I think mm -hmm. that extra level of transparency is really important. And the third piece, I think, is to acknowledge people's good work. Right. People say, oh, you know, if you don't hear from me, that that means it's fine. No, I think we need to tell people when they're doing a good job. I'm a huge fan. One of the classic old fashioned management techniques is the one minute manager. Right, give one piece of positive feedback, catch someone doing something right, tell them they're doing it well. And if you see them doing something that could be done better, tell them. Right. It's yeah. that transparency, that honesty, that communication. And what it does require is a little bit more time. And I think that that is what is often scarce for people. And I hear a lot of managers say, I'd love to do all this. I just don't have the time. 
but we really have to make that time or figure out how to fit it in as leaders because what people want is to know that they're important. And when leaders make people feel that they're being listened to, everything else I think becomes possible. Yeah, and then you think about, well, if you don't make time, uh, 20% of your team members will resign. <laughs> and then you'll have to make time to replace them and do their work in the meantime, uh, right? So <laughs> it's, it's the so upfront, the upfront investment that will, oh gosh, that will pay off. And it so doesn't even have to be a lot of time. That's why I like the yeah. one minute manager, yeah. it's just taking time every day consistently, right? So I was working with a construction team and the boss was, you know, kind of in the trailer and the construction workers were out on the site. And what he said was, I, I don't spend a lot of FaceTime with them, but I just send them a text in the morning and say, hey, let me know if you have any questions or good job yesterday. It's the consistency of communication. It doesn't mean you have to sit for an hour every day having a one-on-one, -on -one, but you do have to consistently let people know that you're available and that you're paying attention. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think there's, a, I recently read this quote that the quantity is more important uh, than the quality of the interactions. And I paused for a second. I thought, oh, I'm not sure if that's true. <laughs> I think the quality is important because that goes into listening. But I got the point. The point was not to say quality isn't important, but it's to say it's the it's the consistency of, and, and that takes not time, but it takes intention, right? It takes the real intentionality to say, this is what I do between eight and nine o'clock in the morning is I am going to look for ways that I can help you know, inspire them, motivate them, give them feedback on how to be more successful in the future. It's a time where I provide updates or share information to create a level of transparency. And that is part of my role. And I block that into my calendar. So I do it every day intentionally. Yeah. I love the idea of blocking it into your calendar at a time when you know you have it. And it's funny, this is why I love multi-generational conversations because there are some practices from the past that we've sort of forgotten about that I like to kind of bring back. My book was called The Remix because I like bringing classics back. And one of them <laughs> was this concept. It's so simple, but exactly what you said about quantity. It's MBWA, management by walking around. There mm -hmm. are statistics that show if people just see you walking around as the leader, they trust you more because they know you're visible. They know you're available. And that's mm -hmm. really important. So the idea of hiding out in your office or not showing up or you know, kind of not answering emails, that is probably the worst thing that you can do as a leader is to not be visible. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting too. I think there's this factor of um, sometimes I see these, <clears throat> less in my coaching conversations, but more so on social media, I see these comments of, well, I paid them. I shouldn't have to praise them, right? Um, and I get that intellectually. And even with the, well, I don't have time for walking around. Like I, I've been there. I've had these thoughts. I get it intellectually that there is an immediate payback or uh, that you, you pay them a salary. And that is a transaction. You could look at it that way. It's just not how humans are wired. It's like, I get that that intellectually seems to be the logical causation or, or right correlation too. It's not how we're wired. Yeah. I'm thinking of a story of a football coach who yelled at his football players. Mm -hmm. And in the past, that used to work. You yelled at them, they ran harder, they played harder, whatever. And now it just doesn't work anymore. So mm -hmm. to me, it's a nice idea that if I pay you, you'll work at your best all the time. It just doesn't work. So you sort of have to make a choice. Am I going to ignore the data of the fact that this is not effective or am mm -hmm. I gonna change? And I think mm -hmm. for a lot of people, either they were never led that way so they don't have a role model for it or it feels uncomfortable or it's not what they wanna do 
but it doesn't work. And, and you see this in parenting, like you can yell at your kids all you want. It just doesn't work to change behavior. So you have mm -hmm. to kind of look at the data and look at what's possible. And, and I think there are a lot of people who didn't really want to be leaders and they kind of fell into it and command and control was their style. And I think you even saw a lot of people during the pandemic who said, I don't want to lead people anymore. The style is not for me. Well, go become an individual contributor. That's fine. But if you yeah. want to lead people in the current day and age, you have to do what's effective. And what's mm -hmm. effective is communicating, acknowledging, spending time with, et cetera. You can say you want the money to be enough, but it just doesn't work at the end of the day. If you want to win, if you want to achieve your goals, you have to do what's effective. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Love how you summarized that. And thinking of new managers too, I think one of the hurdles that I see for new managers or sort of the pitfalls is this idea that this is how I like to be led. This is what I appreciated about my boss. And hence, I am going to lead my team members that way because I think that is what makes good leadership. And I did that personally too. It's like, this is the way I like to be led. So I'm going to become a great leader. I'm going to lead the way that I think good leaders should lead. And I personally totally missed the point that just because I like to be led that way doesn't mean everyone else does. That's just my preference. And so if I think, oh, I would never say that to my boss, or you should never say that to your boss, because I would never say that to my boss, then it's creating more of a disconnect, right? We're trying now to sort of clash our expectations and ideas onto this, the other people who don't agree with that, who actually need something else. And this is why I think, you know, obviously leadership development, training, reading books, getting exposed to these different ideas is so valuable because we start to see things from different perspectives. I think it's so important, particularly across generations. And, you know, I see it with client-based work too. You know, if you're in sales and you want to treat a client and you like to play golf, but they like to play video games and you invite them to play golf and they don't want to go, you're going to alter your behavior because they're the client, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes we have to think about that with employees and, and two thoughts come to mind. One is I'm seeing a trend of employers writing little questionnaires when they hire someone. What is it that motivates you? If you want to be rewarded, would you rather have, you know, like a thousand dollar bonus or a day off? You know, what's more mm -hmm. appealing to you? Uh, you know, you don't want to send Omaha steaks to a vegan, right? It's just not, it's not what you want to do. <laughs> and so if you ask some of these questions, it doesn't guarantee that people are going to get what they want, but it's really important for a leader to know that said, I think it's okay for a leader to have boundaries. So if you want to bring your whole self to work and talk all the time about your personal life, and I don't really want to talk about my personal life, that's okay. Mm -hmm. But I need to communicate to you, you know, Ramona, I love to hear about your kids. I love to hear about your vacation, you know, but at 11 o'clock, I think we need to start talking about business and, you know, I'll share a little bit, but you know, I don't really talk about my, my kids that much. That's okay too. So I think sometimes people see it as black and white. Yeah. I don't have to do everything you want. I don't have to adapt everything for you, but I do think a manager has to decide, you know, for instance, with younger employees and maybe professional dress or, you know, work hours or flexibility, what are the actual boundaries that matter to our work together? And where can I flex a little bit around the edges because this generation of workers or this kind of employee is just different than I was. So it's okay to set rules, but make sure that you're questioning whether the rules are because they actually make sense or because you just feel more comfortable with them. So I think mm -hmm. we do have to be a little bit flexible, but it doesn't mean you have to change everything about who you are. That's what a lot of, I think, older leaders fear with the younger generation. And that's why I like to talk about the mix. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, as we're wrapping up, what 
have we not yet talked about that you wished all new managers would know on day one? So this is a little tidbit I learned from an HR consultant friend of mine named Jamie Klein. And it's really about the importance of those one-on-one conversations. So the way she recommended to me to do one-on-ones has stuck with me forever. And it's so wise. She said, when you have a one-on-one with your employee, the first thing you say is, okay, Ramona, agenda item one, you start. Let your employees start first. Don't dive into the list of things you want to talk about. That will help you understand mental health challenges, understand overwhelm, uh, see if somebody is unhappy in their role, figure out ways to pivot. But we sort of just steamroll past our employees all the time. And I think always saying agenda item one, you start. I think that is just a little trick that gets you in the mindset of being more of a leader coach. Amen to that. (laughs) Take it. No, this is a very practical, simple way to implement right away to really also give that message. This is your meeting to share the things that bother you and you want to have addressed or communicate to me in this meeting. And we're going to have time and space for that. Yeah. Love it. Yep. Lindsay, thank you so much for being on. I know I would love to continue the conversation for hours to, to come, um, but we're at the end of our time together. People who want to learn more about you, where would you say to go connect with you first? Ramona, thank you so much for having me on your fantastic show and for the work that you do. Uh, my website is my name, lindsaypollock.com, but I'm also very active on LinkedIn and would be thrilled to connect with anybody. And I have a new course on LinkedIn learning, managing a multi-generational team that you can find from my LinkedIn profile. And that has a lot of my tips on multi-generational management. So I'll see you on LinkedIn. Okay. I'll go do that right now. So excellent. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. And we'll link to all of that in the show notes. So check out Lindsay Pollock. She's also speaking in an organization. So if you feel like in your organization, talking more about the multi-generational aspect of, or any of the other topics that you have listed on your, on your website for your keynotes, she's an amazing teacher, uh, presenter, facilitator, which you can see when you follow her on LinkedIn or on YouTube. <laughs> Thank you, Lindsay, for being part of the show. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, then check out two other awesome resources to help you become a leader people love to work with. This includes my best-selling book, The Confident and Competent New Manager, which you can find on Amazon or at RamonaShaw.com book and a free training on how to successfully lead as a new manager. You can check it out at RamonaShaw.com masterclass. These resources and a couple more you'll find in the show notes down below.